Good morning, everyone. Good to see you on this Wednesday morning. Sorry I'm a little late. I was watching George's funeral streaming online. I know. I kind of feel like we should stream it right here, but it'll be there when we get out in an hour. Um, good to see you all. Hope you're staying warm because it is not warm outside. So we will keep our coats on in here. It's better than in the church. I think it's about 50 degrees in the church right now. So this is the better room to be in. Let's open with a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this life and we ask that you be with us as we study your word and the work of your disciples through history. On this day, we ask your presence for all those who mourn President H.W. Bush, those family members who gather together in D.C. today to remember and celebrate his life. Be with all of us, all of those we love who need your healing touch, all of those we love and see no longer. Give us all strength and courage that no matter what this world dishes out, we know that you are with us and that you sustain us and that you give us hope everlasting. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we're looking at chapter 11 of Acts, and just a moment of business. Next week is our last Bible study of 2018, and then we will be back together on January 9th. So we'll have a few weeks off, uh, celebrate Christmas and Epiphany, and then we'll be, we'll, we will be back together as we look at chapter 13 come January. So we've got 11 today, 12 next week, and we've got a bit of a break. And next week we'll have bookmarks for the spring semester out for you, and Susan will also send over email the schedule digitally so that you've got it marked down. And we will get through everything by the first week of May. So we've got a few more months left to finish up the book of Acts. Today in chapter 11, chapter 11 is not perhaps as active as chapter 10 was. And so we're going to just do a moment of recap how we got here. Peter has begun to preach and teach beyond Jerusalem. And we see Peter go and visit the Roman soldier Cornelius last week in chapter 10. And if you remember, Peter and Cornelius both had visions from God. Cornelius called Peter to his house over on the coast. As Peter was telling Cornelius the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his household, and then they were baptized with water. Where we find ourselves today is the reaction from Peter's baptism of Cornelius and his household. And so chapter 11 is really only in two parts. The first part is the reaction of what happened to Cornelius. And so Peter is challenged. And then we see that the church continues to be spread, particularly in Antioch. So part one, Peter is challenged. And so we've recalled Cornelius. Cornelius, who was a Roman soldier, a man of faith, a man of generosity, but not a Jewish man. Here's the story of Jesus, and without any human person doing anything, the Spirit falls on Cornelius. And so Peter then baptizes him. The first verse of chapter 11 says, Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. And as you might imagine... They don't like new stuff happening. Now, that's unusual for a church or a faith community, I know. <laughs> Tend to love change, love new stuff. And so these people back in Jerusalem, they are still in the moment where they're trying to figure out what it means for people to follow Jesus. And we've mentioned it multiple times. The big macro theme of Acts is the shift from the Jews to everyone, right? Whether it's Jerusalem to Rome, Peter to Paul, Jews to Gentiles, and we're seeing that shift right now. You've got Peter who represents the old school, who resisted God doing new things, even after he saw the vision, right? Peter sees the vision of the animals and all the other stuff coming down the sheet, and he has to hear three times that what God sanctifies, what God cleans, Peter cannot call dirty, before Peter finally says, okay, I think I get it. But that's Peter, and everyone back in Jerusalem is still trying to figure this out and do the work that they have been called to do in Jerusalem as they understand it. 
So let's put ourselves back in the shoes of those early Jesus followers in Jerusalem. Remember Jesus tried, executed. There are other Jewish groups that are looking to, in political and more violent ways, overthrow Rome out of Judea. These Christian followers, these followers of Jesus, are doing what they think is faithful, but they're doing so in a, in a very dynamic system. They're not the only Jews looking to do something new. They just happen to be doing something new in a way that is nonviolent, non-political. They're just trying to be good people and do what Jesus said to do. But they are in this world where there's a lot of movement and a lot of uncertainty. And so they are, as we do in a world of uncertainty, trying to shore up what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And what they've done is they have figured out, well, we are all Jews. Jesus is, remember, we call Jesus the Christ, right? And one interesting thing is this is the chapter where followers of Jesus begin to be called Christians. We'll see that at the end of chapter 11. Christian was not a, a good term, necessarily. Christian was meant to be a bit derogatory. Because as we know, the whole idea of following Jesus started in the Jewish community. And as members of Jesus' disciple group went around to speak about Jesus, they would always go to the synagogues. So when they traveled outside of Jerusalem, including to Antioch, we'll talk about in a few minutes, they would show up at the synagogue where the Jews would be meeting to worship in order to explain just what Jesus did in the Gospels, to say, this scripture has been fulfilled. Right? The Jews had this prophetic tradition where they were waiting for the Messiah, or the Christ, the chosen one, to come and fulfill the prophecies. When those early Jesus followers would travel around, they'd go to the Jewish communities and the synagogues where they would all gather, in order to tell them that what they have been waiting for has come. The person they've been looking for has come, and then they would proceed to tell them about Jesus. Now, this would not be well received in the synagogue itself, but people would hear the story, and they would go out beyond the synagogue, and then they would learn more, and many of them would, quote, convert. So that's the model that people are using to create what we would call church communities all around the Middle East. What is shifting now is who's actually hearing the story. When this good Jew from Jerusalem would go to see the Jews in Antioch and tell them the story of Jesus, others would hear the story too. And in cities like Antioch, there were lots of non-Jews who were beginning to hear the story of Jesus, and they were interested. But back in Jerusalem, Jesus represented the fulfillment of the Jewish law and prophecy. Jesus was the one who was the Messiah, the Christ. Christ is not Jesus's last name. Christ is the title that we use for Jesus, right? So it's not Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and Jesus Christ. It's just Jesus who is the Christ, the chosen one. And so Christian began to be used for these people who follow Jesus as a means of condescending to them, of insulting them, because they thought this person was the chosen Messiah or the Christ. Just like, and you may know this, the term Methodist was meant to be derogatory. The Wesley brothers were Anglican priests, and they did not think, educated in England, they did not think that the Anglican church was forming people well enough. And so they adopted a very strict and thorough method of forming Christian disciples. But because they were so formal in their methodology, the Anglicans around them made fun of them by calling them Methodists. And so that's where we get that term. So all through history, most of the time, people are named what they are named because they're made fun of, but then they adopt it as a badge of honor. And so that's really what is happening to these Christians, these followers of the fake Christ, so to speak, but then they adopt that moniker for good. So back in Jerusalem, these Jews think they know 
how they're supposed to follow Jesus. And yet they hear that one of their leaders, Peter, has gone off and eaten with and spoken with and baptized Gentiles. And remember, not just a Gentile, a Roman. And so when Peter returns to Jerusalem, he is criticized. Chapter 11, verse 2, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, oh, a quick note. We hear things like, when you go down from Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, and if we know our geography, it might not make sense why we're going up and down. Jerusalem was a high point geographically in the country. And so anyone who had to go to Jerusalem had to quite literally go uphill to get to the city. That doesn't mean a lot to us now because we're in cars. But if you were on foot or if you were having to ride a donkey and the donkey would get tired for going uphill for so far, you really got the sense that Jerusalem was higher in elevation than everywhere else. So Peter went back up to Jerusalem from the coast, and the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Peter is immediately challenged by those who are the right kind of Jesus follower, why Peter would have included the wrong kind of people to be followers of Jesus. So as we will see, and this will not be the last time this happens, Jews are saying Jesus fulfills Jewish prophecies. Why then could you follow Jesus without having been Jewish? As we noted last week, just redundancy for those of you who may have missed it, this is the moment when, for the first time really in global history, religion was not rooted and grounded in some kind of cultural identity. Up to now, everyone's religion was based on who your people are, right? If you were brought up in a particular tradition, ethnic group, cultural group, racial group, then your religion reflected that thread of cultural identity. With Christianity, for the first time, and in a significant way, a religion was opened to anyone, regardless of their cultural background. But as you might imagine, those who had the pedigree of Judaism did not like how these riffraff were able to do the same thing that they were doing. And we get this, right? We know what it means to feel like we have a particular pedigree in a particular tradition, that the way that we do things are not just the better way to do things, but the right way to do things. And if people don't do it the way we like it, then they're not doing it well enough or the right way. Or certainly, if they don't come in and want to do it our way, they can go somewhere else and do it their way, but they can't do it their way here because we do it our way here. All right, we get this. And that's really what's happening in this moment 2,000 years ago is that these people in Jerusalem are saying, we do things this way. That is the way that Jesus wants us to do it, the way God wants us to do it. And these Gentiles have no idea how to do it our way because they do not have the kind of historic experience and formation that we have. So let's look at how Peter responds to his critics in two ways. The first way is we're going to look to see what Peter actually says. Then we're going to figure out what this means for us. So how Peter actually responds to his critics is he recalls the story of the visions that both he and Cornelius had and how Cornelius sent for him, how he traveled to Cornelius, how he told the story of Jesus, how the spirit falled on Cornelius and that he was baptized. If we look at all of those verses, recalling that story, I hope that most of us, just in our own literary experience, might pause to say, or to ask the question, why would Luke tell the whole story again? He just told the story in the previous chapter. It, it, Luke could have easily written, so Peter told them what happened. Because we know what happened, it was just a few verses ago. Why would only a matter of verses later, Luke spent all of that real estate telling the same story again. Well, the obvious answer is 
this story is far more important than almost any other story Luke tells. And he is emphasizing this story, not just because it's good, but it is pivotal, crucial, that we understand just how radical this experience is, not only for the church, but for us. Remember when Luke is writing this story? Luke is writing a historic record of stuff that happened. Luke is not sitting there writing this down to immediately be sent off to other people outside of Jerusalem like a news report. Luke is writing the story down decades after it actually happened. So he is not simply recording all the action. He wants people like us, he may not have thought 2,000 years after, but he wants people like us who were not there to get something about the story he's telling. And so just in case you missed it, Luke is telling you again that this story should absolutely change the way that you practice your faith. And if it didn't the first time, then figure out this time why it should make a radical change in you. This is one of those moments when we read the Bible that I hope we don't just toss off as an accident. Luke is not bored. Luke is not short on material. So he's got to fill it up like a you know, college student trying to finish a paper at the end of a semester, right? He's got plenty of stuff. He specifically takes half a chapter to repeat a story. If last week's story did not do something to bother you and challenge you, he's given it to you again to make sure you hear him say, you should not really like this story it should rub you and stretch you and make you uncomfortable. And if it didn't, here's a second chance for it to make you uncomfortable. So Peter explains the whole thing. And this time he adds, Luke adds a little bit of verbiage. If we look at verse 16, Peter says the words of Jesus. Peter says, and I remember, Peter remembers, the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter has begun to figure out what perhaps he witnessed with Cornelius. Peter, as he was telling the story of Jesus, sees the Spirit fall upon Cornelius and his family, and that makes no sense. Why could they receive the Spirit before baptism? And I imagine on the way back to Jerusalem, Peter is rolling this around in his head, and at some point he thinks, oh, yeah, Jesus said, John baptized with water, but I'm going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Let's pause here and just answer a question that I received last week. So I got a question written on a pledge card, and if you wrote this question and haven't pledged, I just want you to know you wasted a card. Um, and just for those of you who have yet to pledge, this is what the pledge cards look like. <laughs> you can find them in your pews. Apparently, they're in your pews because I got a question. So last week, someone asked, do Jewish people baptize babies? Is that where the tradition comes from in their culture? Baptism for Jews is not the, exactly the same as we think of baptism. What I've said in here is that we get our ritual of baptism as an extension of sacred cleansing that Jewish people go through before they worship. What we did with baptism is we made it once and for all. So whereas Jewish people, whenever they want to go worship, high holy days and whatnot, the history is they would go through a mikvah bath cleansing ritual where they would be immersed in water and be ritually cleansed for worship. This would happen as many times as they wanted it to happen. If a Jewish person wanted it every morning before they went to worship every day, they could get it. What Christians did is they took the idea of cleansing, but they married that idea with the grace and salvation ideas that Jesus taught to say, we do need to be cleansed. 
but we are cleansed once for all. We don't do it over and over and over and over again. Instead, God's grace is really what cleanses us. And if we push on with that idea, we are baptized with the Spirit. Now, water is a really nice way to represent the Spirit. What does the Spirit look like? Can you see the Spirit? No. Maybe you can. If you can, that'd be great. Tell me later. But the Spirit is not really something we can touch and taste and see, but water is. And so when we baptize people in our tradition, when we baptize them into the Christian faith, water is a tangible representation of a spiritual reality. Is someone not able to receive the Spirit if they are not baptized with water? Well, of course not. We heard the story. Cornelius and his family got it, with or without the water. But then they had the water. And so for us, in our tradition, water represents something that God is actually doing. Right? When I baptize a baby with water, I am not cleansing this baby in the spiritual sense. We, as a community, are praying spiritual cleansing over the child. And it's the spirit that cleanses them for good. Now, does that mean we shouldn't do what we do? No, I, we do what we do so we all can see that something is happening. But is it really my hands and this water, or is it really the spirit? In this moment, Peter is recalling the truth of his experience and the profound reality of the Spirit falling on these Gentiles such that it will have to change the way that these Jews in Jerusalem understand Jesus' discipleship. Now let's talk about how this, or what this means for us. First, let's consider what we think about God. I think for many Christians, perhaps most of us, because mo the loudest Christians tend to be the ones with the more strident views, put a box around God because there is a pridefulness, I'm going to get, sorry, whatever it is, there's a pridefulness around thinking that they understand everything about God. And so many Christian traditions create laws and rules and regulations, parameters and boxes, and God fits in those spaces. And then you've got the preachers who will tell you how big God is and what you have to do in order to do what God wants you to do. There is a, that is human nature, to try and put parameters around something we can't actually understand. The Jews, before Jesus, had an elaborate, thorough, very well-intended and well-formed set of laws that Jesus came to say is not how you are saved. Jesus' message was, the law doesn't save you, God does. And so these good Jews who began to follow Jesus understood perhaps in a moment what Jesus meant, but they could not deny who they were and how they were raised. And so within a few years, they had done the same thing again and began to put rules and regulations around what it meant to follow Jesus. And Peter has been shaken out of this with Cornelius and comes back to Jerusalem to remind them again, you, you can't put parameters around God. That sounds good in theory, except we all know that everyone puts parameters around God. Everyone tries to make God fit what they really think God is. And if there's one reason why I like being Episcopalian, it's because although, although the Anglican Church has, has not always been this way, I think that where we're trying to go as Episcopalians now is the sense that God's always bigger than we think he is. So whenever we think 
God has limited some bit of reality or truth, it is most likely we have done that. That God is much bigger than whatever kind of box we want to put him in. Now, do we try, we as human people don't, it would be almost untenable to say there is no parameter around our life together. But part of what I like about being a little c Catholic church, like the Catholicity of being an Anglican Christian is such that we're not alone in this. And by we, I mean a church like St. Michael. We may at St. Michael in a functional sense need to say we do these things and we don't really do those things. Not that those things are bad, but we can't do everything all the time. And so we're going to choose to do a few things really well. And these other things, although great, we can't do them on top of these other things or else nothing's really done well enough. But we do that with the explicit perspective that we have sister churches in this city, in this state, and around the world who are in a way doing the same thing, figuring out who they are, what their strengths are, and using those strengths out in the world to extend the kingdom. And if we all do that, then everything gets done. And that's the faithfulness of why one community may not be everything to everyone, but when we are connected in, a, in that Catholic sense, we actually are able to provide access points and reflect the truth of God as broadly as possible. What's happening in Jerusalem is that Peter is pushing on the church there to make sure they don't limit God's grace and love. But like any human person, any human community, they're going to continue to run up against the wall of their own expectations, parameters, and rules. And we're going to see that in a few chapters in a major moment called the Jerusalem Council, where they have to, rather than just being okay with God being bigger than whatever they think God is, they've got to then call a council together and make decisions around creedal identity and theology so that they have some rules that they can follow or else they're too uncomfortable. So I'm going to pause there and see if you have any thoughts or questions around what's going on. Okay, so I'm going to try and summarize your question to say you've got Jewish ritual cleansings, you've got Christian baptism, and perhaps where does John the Baptist fit in that spectrum? Is that... Okay, good. So, so the Jewish tradition of ritual cleansing looks very much like baptism. Um, if you were to go to see a mikvah bath, and si some synagogues, especially older synagogues in this country, will actually have these mikvah baths, and they look like immersion tanks in many Christian churches, where there's a, it's like a small pool or a big spa or something, and you walk in and someone will literally like dunk you down and bring you back up. What John the Baptist was doing by baptizing out in the river was, uh, we, can, we can almost understand it as, uh, how might I put this? Opening up the ritual beyond the legal tradition of the Jewish authority. So, for example, in our tradition, we have the ritual of baptism where come to church, you say your prayers, you get the water from the font that has been blessed and then the oil and all that good stuff. It's a good thing. Can any of you baptize someone? Yes. Yes. And so could you just go on over to the UP pool with a friend and baptize them there. Well, sure you could. We don't tend to do that because we like the ritual that we have in our sacred space, but that doesn't make this better. And if someone really wanted to annoy people here, they would start 
baptizing people over at the UP pool and then telling you about it and posting it with like hashtag real baptism, right? I mean, they would start doing that kind of thing just to piss us off. And that's really what John was doing. John was a firebrand. He was a rabble rouser. He wanted to annoy all the leadership. Sure, well, John was a prophet. Yes. And John was meant to call attention to the ministry that Jesus would then do. John, by, by most accounts, John understood his role. John got that it wasn't about him, but that he was kind of lighting the fuse that would ultimately blow in the person of Jesus. But we even see with John that when Jesus doesn't do what the Jews thought the Messiah would do, John's wondering, are you the real one? Because we have the one scene in one gospel, I forget which one, where John's in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you actually the one? Because like, we had a nice moment in the Jordan River and I kind of figured that you were him and then you've not done anything. And so even John, who I think we can confidently say understood his role in the cosmic story, didn't get the result he wanted. And so began to wonder if Jesus is really the right person. So it's understandable. I mean, doubt for me is the actual beginning of real faith. You know, if you never doubt, then do you really believe it? Or have you just kind of accepted it in a passive way? And again, one of the reasons why I like being Episcopalian is doubt away. Still come and still do the stuff because I'll tell you, doubt all you want. What we do here is still good. And you'll go through your doubt and I'm very confident you're going to realize that actually this stuff is good and you'll be back. But don't be afraid of doubting because I think once you go through that, and you may go through that phase in many different ways in your life, those are healthy moments because where you land after you go through some, a doubtful phase is at a deeper level of faith. And that can only be good. I saw another hand. Mm -hmm. Well, so let me, let me maybe say it this way. Baptism is not magic. We put a lot on baptism, and that's okay. But the moment of baptism represents a truth and a shift that has happened. So, let me put, hold on. Baptism is a part of a journey of faith, discovery, and formation. If we baptize an adult, it's not that they aren't faithful until they are baptized. It's that baptism marks a moment where the community acknowledges the responsibility we have to that individual. In the same way, when we baptize babies or any young person who can't, or for that matter, any person, adult or child, who can't, in a cognitive capacity, make an intentional choice. We are assuming the responsibility of raising up that person in the Christian faith and life. We say that, which is one of the reasons why we really don't do private baptisms. Now, we do small baptisms, and on occasion, when a family may need something like they've got family members who can't travel on a certain day and so they need to be here a different weekend, or we may have a small baptism, but even when we do one of those small baptisms, we connect it to a worship service, like say on a Sunday night, and we invite the congregation to remain and be a part of the baptism. Many don't, but many do. We don't baptize on our own if we can help it because that's not really the point. The point of baptism is that, is not that now you will not burn in hell. I mean that, and I say that not to really be funny, I think for many of us, and 
we get this in other traditions. Without baptism, you're sunk, right? I mean, your eternal life is damned, literally. We don't really do that. For us, baptism represents a journey where we commit to being together. And it's the community that matters. We are a tradition that emphasizes the community over the individual, always. In everything that we do, it is always about the community. Whether that's in leadership and governance, whether that's in liturgy and worship, we are always emphasizing community first. And so when we baptize someone, the primary function of that baptism is to raise everyone else's expectations and commitment to the person. When we baptize a person who can't make a cognitive or intentional decision for a Christian life, we have another moment that comes later that we call confirmation. And that's when the person actually makes that affirmation. But that does not make baptism any less real because the number one reason we baptize is so that that person is now in a community that takes responsibility for them. Now, I say that in theory. Most churches fall way short of this, including us. And if we could theoretically, if we could actually put our minds around the commitment we make at baptism to the person being baptized, rather than them thinking of it as now they get to go to heaven, good for them, it would make the experience a whole lot better. We as a community would be a whole lot stronger. I saw you next, Kristen. Oh, the believing Jews are uncomfortable. Oh, yes. So Luke's primary audience are Gentiles, not Jews. Oh, yes. Oh, got it. Okay. So question is, why would the Gentiles be uncomfortable hearing a story about accepting Gentiles? Yeah, there Because the story is not about accepting Gentiles. The story is about accepting people not like you. And that makes anyone uncomfortable. Because we fundamentally like, not like. We are, whether we want to be or not, more comfortable around people who are like us. Now, you can, you can intellectualize that in a very healthy way to say, I shouldn't be, I want to be open, I want to include everyone, and that's great. But we should not lose the reality that our visceral comfort level that we cannot control intellectually is warmer around people like us than not. And it, it can be a very quick shift to where we are nice and generous and inclusive and all the other stuff, but we are shifting. Now, the more often we shift, the more comfortable we get with that shift and the more we actually become a kind of person who is comfortable. And that can happen in a lifetime, sure. But for most people, they're not brought up in a way, in a, in a reality that is honest to goodness diverse. And just think about it genetically. You're raised in a family of people like you. Of course you are. They made you, right? I mean, you have two people who make a person and they're gonna be like each other. It's just genetics. And with some exceptions, obviously adoption and other things like that, most people are raised to have a deeper comfort level with people who are like them. Okay, that's really the story. So yes, on the, like any good story, you can read it in multiple levels. So theologically, Gentiles are accepted. That's a very important idea. And yes, Gentiles will like that idea. That will not make them uncomfortable. But we are like the Gentiles who are accepted in that story. So we read that and we think, sweet, we don't have to be Jewish. Go deeper than that level of the story to say, oh, but wait a minute. Look around this room. We cannot say that this room or our church is the most 
diverse place. And it's no judgment, but we should be aware of it. And we should at least acknowledge that the kingdom of God doesn't look just like this. That is what I think should push us a little bit and make us a bit uncomfortable. Because even if every person in this room intellectually understands the kingdom of God is much more broad than what is represented in this room right now, we are still sitting in a room that looks like this right now. What are we going to do about making sure that we are formed over time in the truth that the kingdom of God is bigger than this, that our children and our friends and our neighbors know the kingdom of God is bigger than this, so that we don't, in a passive, accidental way, perpetuate what we see happening right now in our country. I mean, come on, what we see right now is tribalism. People are afraid of the people who aren't like them. And because that is natural, it is easy to exploit the fear that people might feel in the, in the most guttural sense about people who aren't like them. Now, the best of us is that we are not afraid of people who are unlike us. But stress and anxiety and worry and uncertainty wear away the best of us. And it can make us a bit raw so that we are susceptible to falling victim to the fear that people around us will use to their own advantage. I mean, if you, uh, I'll stop. I will get off the rails if I keep going. So, all right, I saw uh, other questions or thoughts? Any other questions or thoughts? All right. Church in Antioch is a much simpler passage. Jesus' teachings in Jerusalem got him killed. Disciples were afraid. They hid. They received the Spirit got a little courage, went out and started preaching, gathered other leaders together, including people like Stephen, who was then killed. They are afraid of what's going on in Jerusalem. And many of them leave Jerusalem and begin to preach and teach elsewhere because Jerusalem is just too hot. We saw that with Philip. Philip left and went to Samaria. That's not that far. But it's far enough to where he's kind of out of the, of the pressure cooker of Jerusalem, the city. In addition to the disciples raised up in Jerusalem who go and preach and teach around, words getting out about this person, Jesus. And Antioch is a city that is north of Israel Today, it, it would be, at this point in time, it's, it's considered Syrian Antioch. There are two Antiochs. There's Syrian Antioch, and there's the Antioch that is up in central Turkey today. Both Antiochs today are in the country of Turkey. But at this time, it was actually in the land of Syria. And so if, if we, I don't know if you could, we can really imagine the Middle East, but Israel's got a bit of the Mediterranean coast, the northwest portion of the country. If you go up the coast from Israel, you get the coastal bit of Lebanon, and then you get a coastal bit of Syria, and then you get kind of right under the armpit of Turkey. And that's where Antioch is. So today it's Turkey officially, but back then it was Syria. Antioch was a major trading post. And when you've got a big economy, you've got people who come from all over the place, and they're hearing about these stories of the Jews following this man named Jesus. Those stories start to spin around, and people start showing up at the synagogues in Antioch. So, you know, they're on a business trip. They want to go worship. They go to the synagogue, and they're saying, well, you know, when I was in the synagogue in Jerusalem, they were telling me about this guy, Jesus. And those stories start to percolate, 
and there's an interest in Antioch around the story of Jesus that finally gets back to Jerusalem. And the leaders in Jerusalem say, we've got to capitalize on this interest. And so they send Barnabas from Jerusalem up to Antioch to just see what's going on. Well, Barnabas gets there, and Barnabas says, oh, there's a lot more interest than we thought. We need a real solid teacher to really get these people going in the right direction. And so Barnabas goes off to a place named Tarsus to find a guy named Saul. So if we remember Saul, who was converted back in Jerusalem, and Mary Lesman taught that class. I'm not entirely sure what she told you, but I'll summarize it. Saul got converted and became super annoying. And so the Jews in Jerusalem said, you are bugging us, get out of here. And so Saul left and went back to Tarsus, which is where he would have been raised. Barnabas, though, remembered Saul and remembered even though he's annoying, he was a good teacher. And so Barnabas goes off, finds Saul, brings him back to Antioch, and the two of them spend a year in Antioch forming these people in a real solid Christian community. Now, these people would be Jews and Gentiles. And Antioch becomes, in our story, whether it was the first historically or not, it's the first place in our story that really gets a solid Christian community formed that is genuinely diverse from the start. So in Jerusalem, you're getting some Gentiles who will be brought in, but they're always the new ones. They're, they weren't here. They've come here. In Antioch, what you get is a community formed from the start with Jews and Gentiles. And so they will become, over time, a model for the other churches that this Saul, who we will soon call Paul, will plant everywhere else. Yes, there are Jews who get the tradition, but there are Gentiles brought in who are interested in something better than whatever they have, and they're merged from the very beginning so that those communities are really what they think God is calling them to be, which is not just Jews who follow Jesus, but humans who follow Jesus. Now, that being said, just a real quick note. Much of the ritual that we inherit, we've already talked a lot about baptism today, much of the ritual that we inherit is going to be springboarded from, that's a bad way of saying that, we're going to be inspired by Jewish traditions. I mean, what do we do at the Eucharist? We have a Passover meal, right? So much of what we do is based on Jewish traditions. So it's not that they jettison Judaism altogether, but they appropriate the parts of Judaism that Jesus appropriated. And there are only two sacraments that Jesus performs in the Gospels, baptism and Eucharist. And that's what the Reformers took issue with five, six hundred years ago, was the church had seven, but Jesus only ever did two. So we, like good Anglicans, said, well, how about if we make two more important than the other five? Like, we're not going to lose the other five. We're just going to say those are the most important. It's like number first-tier sacraments, second-tier sacraments, right? Where the Protestants just kind of did away with the other five and just kept the two. We liked it in the middle. All right, I see it. I saw one hand. Good question. So persecution that is referred to here is not only these new Christians. Anyone who is not following the rules is being persecuted. The Romans were relatively sophisticated governors in the sense that they didn't, they didn't always, they, they did this a few times, and this is ultimately kind of what messed them up. Most of the time they'd go into an, a land with an indigenous culture and religion and say, keep that stuff and just pay us taxes. Uh, they weren't perfectly that way, but most of the time they were. And so in Judea, most of the time, the Romans really just left them alone to just be Jewish however they want to be Jewish. But in doing so, they functionally propped up the Jewish leadership. 
So the Jewish leadership became politically powerful because they were the ones that the Romans kind of tapped to be in charge of the people. Romans didn't want the Jews. They were just there. And so be quiet and do your stuff and let us do our stuff and we're good. The Jews were highly invested in being conciliatory to the Romans. That's why the other Jewish revolutionaries were acting out against their own Jewish leadership and the Roman leadership. It wasn't, always, it wasn't just Roman. It was the Jews who were complicit in Roman rule as well. That's what the Romans in particular didn't like. They liked predictability and stability. If you were going to undermine their stable structure, you were a problem. They did not care why you wanted to undermine their structure. Religion, politics, it doesn't matter. They want predictability. There were multiple groups that were unpredictable, and they were the ones being persecuted. One of those groups are the ones we're talking about here, the followers of Jesus. But they weren't the only ones, which is why I said Jerusalem is really a pressure cooker of, of unrest in many different ways. And so that's the kind of persecution they're getting rid of. We, do, we should not at this point equate the persecution referred to in Acts to persecution like Christians being thrown to the lions kind of stuff. That comes later. Those are separate things. That happens well after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. What's happening right now is a persecution that is for anyone disrupting the peace. And it happens to be the followers of Jesus are a part of that disruption. Any final question or thought? Okay, quick reminder that we are in Advent. If you've not picked up your Advent meditation books, grab one on your way out. They're on all the different tables. We've got Christmas lessons and carols Sunday night, the Sunday before Christmas Eve. We'd love to see you all there. And we'll be together one more week before we have our Christmas break. See you all then.